This reading is from John chapter 5. After this, there were a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there already a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is God's word. Another encounter with Jesus, which is read about in this uh, little series where the first Sunday of every month we're going to look at a specific encounter with with Jesus. Um, The the narrative that you've just had read to you by Jacob, um, I think sort of broadly represents two prominent groups of people that you might find in Belfast today. I'm not saying that these are the only two groups, there are lots of other groups, but that represents two prominent groups that we, uh, of people that we might come across. Uh, One person in this narrative that we've just read represents what we might describe as the ordinary person, the everyday man, someone who's sort of vaguely spiritual, probably more superstitious than spiritual. The other group, the other group that we'll see that's sort of represented in our city today are the religious fundamentalists. Hard-headed, judgmental, religious people. But both in our city and in the scripture today and the story we've just read, both of these types of people need to hear and understand Jesus in order to make any sense in life. They both need to stand amazed in the presence as we were just singing a few moments ago. So we're going to um, think of this passage under these two headings. Number one, Jesus transforms the needy. And the second thing we're going to learn is that Jesus unsettles the self-righteous. Jesus transforms the needy and Jesus unsettles the self-righteous. So first of all, let's think about the man who's at the center of this narrative. Jesus transforms the needy. He's a man. We're told he is an invalid And the narrative tells us that for 38 years, this man has been sat around this pool, this pool called Bethesda, for 30, now it doesn't necessarily mean he was sat at that pool for 38 years, but for 38 years he was found in and around that pool, or rather around that pool, probably coming to it from time to time. Therefore, anyway, because he was an invalid, doesn't tell us exactly what was wrong with him, he's probably disabled, unable to use his legs, probably something like that. Therefore, he would have been uneducated, He would have been poor because he couldn't have earned a living for himself, couldn't 
stand up and sell stuff or, or do whatever. And so there we find him at the pool of Bethesda. And it says there in verse uh, 3, here, around this pool, uh, among these sort of colonnades, you know, these sort of, um, I don't know, columns or something like that, lay a multitude of invalids. This seemed to be the place, this pool, seemed to be the place where people who were, as it says, blind or lame or paralyzed or somehow unable to work or somehow unable to function in society gathered time after time. Why do they gather there? Well, it tells us in verse 7, um, in the man's sort of uh, answer to Jesus' question, from time to time it seems to be that the water is somehow sort of stirred up in this pool. It becomes bubbly or starts moving around a little bit. Um, we know now from more modern uh, archaeological ex, um, what do you call it? Explorations, that's it. Um, excavations, that's better. Um, that the pool of, of Bethesda uh, has been located and it was supplied from uh, higher water sources, higher pools, uh, and that, that kept the water flowing. But also there were smaller tributaries from springs that also fed into the pool of Bethesda. And so from time to time, these springs would bubble up and probably cause this sort of stirring or moving effect that, that this man noticed. Anyway, it seems to be that over time, a superstition developed around this phenomena. And it was, it was said that the first person who got into the pool after this bubbling or stirring or movement of the water, the first one to get in would be healed of their infirmity, whatever it happened to be. And so therefore, this, this center, this site, not only attracted people uh, like uh, one another, you know, attracted invalids together, um, but it attracted them because of this superstition. Uh, I guess we see similar things across uh, the world in various other parts. Um, you know, for example, you may know friends at work or whatever, you go off to France, to Lourdes every, every so often on pilgrimage to a place where um, it's reported a miracle once took place and a you know, sort of visitation, if you like. And, and many people flock to Lourdes in France, uh, hoping for the same thing, hoping to, to be healed of their infirmity, hoping for a miracle. And so that's probably a sort of a, a modern day equivalent to what we see here in this scripture, in this story. Anyway, it says in verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. That word knew, that Jesus knew, is not just that someone told Jesus, oh, by the way, this guy's been lying here for 38 years. But Jesus had this sort of divine insight. Every, everywhere else in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, this, this knowing, this knowledge that Jesus has is, is revelation given to him by God. And so he, he knew that this man had not just turned up that day, he had been there, coming there, uh, for, for 38 years. He knew exactly what this man needed, which makes Jesus' question to him quite unusual. Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? Isn't that a weird question to ask someone who's been lying at this pool for 38 years, hoping to get him to be healed? Of course you think he would want to be healed. He has been stuck in this place. Perhaps he has resigned himself to thinking that this is it, that my present situation is just the way it's going to be. It is no use, he may have thought to himself. This is just my lot. I, perhaps he has given up the hope of any change, any healing, any transformation. Do you want to be healed? 
but his response to Jesus was equally as instructive. He doesn't answer Jesus and say, yes, whoever you are, I would love to be healed. He doesn't say that, does he? Instead, he gives Jesus an excuse as to why he's not healed. In fact, it's two excuses if you look at his answer in verse 7. Do you want to be healed? And his response is, I have no one to put me in the water. And even when I try and get up, someone else gets down in front of me. Do you see that? Firstly, he says, I have no one to put me in the water. In other words, I can't help myself. I don't have the power to do what is necessary to be healed. There is nothing in me that can get me to where I need to be. I just am powerless. Do you want to be healed? I have no power. But the second part of his response goes like this. Not only does he have no power, no one to help him, but another one gets in before me. It's another way of saying someone always beats me to it. I might struggle in that direction, but I'm not quick enough. I'm not savvy enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm just not good enough to be healed. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? And he says, I don't have the power and I'm just not good enough. I can't help myself even if I want to. And even if I could, I wouldn't be good enough anyway. But it says that Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was going on in this man's heart. He knew what was going on in this man's mind. He knew what he wanted. He knew what he needed. And so he said to him in verse 8, as you can see, get up. Take up your bed. Walk. And it says in verse 9, at once, the man was healed, took up his bed, and walked. No dialogue between the two of them. No call to believe in Jesus and have faith in him. None of that. Just a, a word. Just a command from Jesus be healed. Not even a, a, a recorded response from the man. He just found himself obeying the command. Jesus spoke the word and it happened and the man was miraculously, completely, gloriously restored. He had healing right there and then. And it came to him completely. He had freedom from his lameness. All of the social physical, spiritual, or if you like, reasons for him to be sat at that pool for 38 years, in one word, were removed. He was released. We do see later on that a response was required from the man. Jesus meets him later on and says to him in verse 14, look, I've made you well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He's saying to, to the man later on, live in response to what I've done for you. Mend your ways. Live for me. You can see in this story, can't you, that the grace of Jesus, it demands a response 
That's how you know if you've been transformed by Jesus, is if you live in response to what he's done. If your life is profoundly shaped by him, that's how you know you've heard the grace of Jesus. I see this man lying here for 38 years with all of his excuses and all the reasons why he isn't healed. That's actually a picture of us, some of us anyway, at least. That's why I said at the start, this man represents what we could consider to be a large group of people in our city. It might even represent you to a certain extent. This might be true, this man's struggle. This might be true for you on a physical plane, but it is certainly true for us at some point in our lives on a spiritual, a psychological plane. A moral plane. This man represents those of us who, at some level, consciously or, or unconsciously through our or subconsciously through our actions, know that there is a gap in our lives. There is a need that is unmet. There is a guilt that we cannot shift. And like this man, many people in our city, and perhaps you this evening, are stood or lying, staring at the waters hoping that one day they'll be stirred, looking for relief, for healing, and yet continually being disappointed. Maybe like the man, you are on that constant lookout for ways to help yourself, to improve yourself, to be better, to get the approval that you've been looking for and craving for, and yet cannot seem to find. Perhaps it's the superstition that you have. But like the man in the story, aside from Jesus, you are powerless and you have experienced that. You know that. Because nothing you have done or tried or indulged in or denied yourself has made any difference. Like the man, eventually, we realize that we cannot help ourselves and even if we could, we're not good enough anyway. So whether for you it's superstitions or religious practices or dietary control, you have been trying to help yourself. You want to try and make yourself feel well and yet you have failed. If that's you, if you identify in some way with this man and this story, to you, Jesus says, rise, Get up. Stop looking at the waters and start looking at me. I will grant you life, says Jesus in the gospel. I will give you healing. I will begin in you the process of restoration that you crave for. I will come to you in a life-altering, transforming relationship. Do you want to be healed? Well, then Jesus says, come and receive life. Come and receive my grace. Jesus transforms the needy. And transformation for us begins when we trust that Jesus is what we need. 
Healing and restoration in Jesus is guaranteed. Progress is expected. Physical healing may even come instantly right now. It will come completely one day. Of that there is no doubt. Jesus transforms the needy. But the second group that we see in this scripture, they're kind of hiding a little bit. But if you look at the number of words, even on your sheet, they occupy almost the half of the story itself. And that is the Jews. The second group, the Jews, in inverted commas. See, for John, for St. John, who wrote this, this gospel, the Jews aren't just Jews in general, because Jesus was a Jew, the man laying at the pool was a Jew, not Jews in general, but for John, Jews, when he uses that phrase, referred to hostile Jews, often religious leaders, certainly religious fundamentalists, such as the hardline sect of the Pharisees. They are hostile to Jesus and his claims. That's who he means by the Jews. And that's that second group of people that live in our city. Again, that may be one of you, some of you. Look down at verse 9, the second half of verse 9. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. See that? That's not just an interesting chronological piece of information to let you know what day of the week this happened. That is important. This happened on the Sabbath, the day of rest, the day that's commanded in God's law, do not do any work. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. And it says that the Jews objected to this man. They said to him in verse 10, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now that's not explicitly mentioned in the entire law code, the first five books of the Bible, that it's illegal to carry your bed on a Sabbath day. Most likely this was an extension of the law, a tradition of the elders and so these Jews, these religious fundamentalists, take this man to task. You should not be carrying your bed on a Sabbath. You can, you can start to see, even in that early comment, the problem that this group of people have. They miss the wood for the trees. This man, don't forget, has just been healed after 38 years. I'm not even 38 yet. Some of you, uh, for 38 that's, that's a way in the future. But 38 years is a long time. This man had been on his knees for 38 years and in a word he is lifted, he is freed, amazing, remarkable. This stupendous miracle, this stupendous sign of God's grace and yet their response to this amazing sign. You're carrying your mat on a Sabbath. This group are more concerned about religious tradition than they are about the extraordinary manifestation of God's power through Jesus, his son. How can this group of people get it so spectacularly wrong? How can they view things so lopsidedly? Elsewhere in the Gospels, 
Jesus pronounces woe on such people, curses on such people. In one place he says, Woe are you. You give God a tenth, a tithe, of your mint, dill, and other garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. Instead, he says you should do both. But some of you are more concerned to tie the tenth of your garden herbs than you are about the bigger issues of, of justice and love. Elsewhere, Jesus says of the same group of people, he says, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You're more interested in removing these tiny particles from your cup of tea, but then you swallow something which is huge and massive. You're so concerned about these little tiny things and yet you, you miss the big things. See, it's important to understand with this group of people that are represented by the Jews here in this text, it is important to understand that it is not primarily an intellectual problem that they have. It's not that these people can't understand what has just happened. It's not that they see this remarkable healing and, and don't see it at the same time. The issue for them is deeper. Some people say seeing is believing. If I just see a miracle, I'll believe in God. But here and elsewhere in the scriptures, we know for a fact that that doesn't always happen. Seeing is not always believing. They can see just fine. They can understand just fine. The problem is far deeper. These people don't want to see. They don't want to believe. They don't want to acknowledge what has happened right in front of them. So they choose to focus on the fact of the mat instead. See, for these people, for these religious fundamentalists, it's a heart issue. It's not an intellectual issue. Why, why is that? Why do some people behave like that when faced with a remarkable demonstration of God's presence? They focus on the mat. I think it's this. Jesus and his grace and his power. He is radically unsettling. It's, he's radically unsettling because you can't control him. And sometimes, particularly if you're brought up in a, in a, in a Christian environment, a Christian family, we forget how deeply unsettling and deeply troubling Jesus is to people who have not had that heritage. Because you cannot keep a lid on Jesus. If the focus in your life is control, if it is keeping laws great and small, then it is possible for you to maintain control over your life. It is possible for you to keep your religion within reach. You can let things, you, you, rather, you find it easier to let things not get out of hand. If the goal of your life is to keep God happy by keeping as many of his laws as possible, then it is possible for you to have a nice, steady, controllable life. You can dictate your own path. You can be the captain of your own destiny. 
It's a safe life. It avoids the unsettling episodes that some religious people have in life. But observe what it does to people who live like this. Look at the reaction to Jesus and his power and his grace and his transformation. For these people, it is too unsettling. For these people, it is out of their control. They cannot master it or own it, so they prefer the safety of focusing on the mat instead. We can start to see what this does if someone lives like this. They look down on other people who don't match up to the way they do. They look at the evidence of God's grace and they are not filled with joy or praise. They don't say, how great is our God? But instead they say, you're carrying your mat on a Sabbath. You're a lawbreaker. You're not as good as you should be. It doesn't matter what experience you've had with God. You see, religious people forget. You can disobey, disobey God by overtly sinning. But they forget this bit. You can also disobey God through obedience, through religion, even through keeping his laws. You can disobey God in that way because you can keep his laws, but not from a heart that is transformed by Jesus. Not, not from a desire to please God because of Jesus, but law-keeping from a desire to control God by putting him in your debt. Jesus unsettles the self-righteous. For these people, grace is unsettling. It is alien to their experience. It destroys their neat categories. It controls their mechanisms. It uses religion to keep God at arm's length. They see grace applied lavishly to other people and they respond in fault-finding, nitpicking and extinguishing the flames of revival. Jesus unsettles the self-righteous and Jesus transforms the lowly. We don't know, let's just sum up, we don't know where the healed man ended up eventually. Neither do we know the actual eventual response of the religious people in this narrative. But one thing we know for sure in reading these verses is that Jesus always provokes a reaction. You either love him or you hate him, but no reaction to Jesus whatsoever means that you haven't heard him. You haven't taken the time to really think it through. You haven't seriously read to find out if this stuff is true and real or not. Where does this leave us today? Well, the truth is, there's an element, I think, of both of these types of people in each of us. Some of us may veer to one direction or another, but there's a bit of both of these characters in us. We either try and dig ourselves out, center our lives around some empty hope, or we go to the religious side, 
in an effort to get God to do what we want, treat him like a genie in a bottle. But the good news, folks, is that Jesus knows. He knows you. And as this scripture shows, he is for you. And he offers you grace. He offers you his love. He offers you acceptance and and forgiveness. He comes to turn the unlovely into the lovely. Jesus comes to turn the mess into beauty. Jesus lifts up the lowly and he humbles the proud. And both of these people find life and peace in him. Through his death, we have life. And when Jesus rose again on the third day, after dying on the cross, he shared that life with his people, that forgiveness, that rest, that ultimate healing, that chance of real change. Now he shared that with his people when he rose from the grave. Two options for you. Number one, maybe this evening you need to take steps of faith towards Jesus. You need to stop looking down to the waters, waiting for them to be stirred up. And you need to start looking up to Jesus to achieve all that you could ever want and need and more. This means trusting not only that Jesus can save you, but trusting that he wants to save you. And the good news is that he is able. You are not. So just be honest with yourself for a change. He is able to do it. He is powerful and loving. And that is good news. So number one, maybe you need to take steps towards him in faith. Even if you've already started those steps, take another step. Walk deeper. Second option. Perhaps you're coming from the other perspective, that of the religious group. You like the idea of God's grace. You find yourself being stirred when you sing about it. Maybe you've even benefited from it personally. But you're just a bit uncomfortable about where all this could end up if we go down this line. It's all a bit too messy. It's all a bit unpredictable. But the reality is the grace and the effects of grace in us broken people, it is messy. And it will challenge your comfort zones. And yes, grace feels awkward. And yes, Jesus, in one sense, is dangerous. But if you identify a little with this religious mindset, let me say this to you. The same grace that saves a mess like you and me is the same grace that saves everyone, no matter how messy their lives had been beforehand. So if you count yourself a recipient of that grace, 
Know today it's the same grace that is available for all people, not just for you. Let me end with this vision test. This is more for those who are regular here at Foundation Church. Imagine right now that this church building, or this building where we meet, is filled with the kind of people that we see in verse 3. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the chronically unemployed, the poor, the destitute, people with a past. But mixed in, in this vision experiment, mixed in with those people, are those who are formerly religious fundamentalists, but who sit there now with big, transformed, generous hearts, open wallets. All of these people, not just sitting segregated, but sitting together, singing together, doing life together, helping one another enjoy and reflect Jesus more and more. What do you think about that vision? If you say yes, yes. That is the kind of church that I want to be a part of. That is the kind of community that I want to experience. There's nothing like that out there. If you say yes, then you're starting to understand and marvel and desire God's transforming grace in Jesus Christ. But if after I've created that vision for you, you say, oh, that just sounds awful. You, you shrink away mentally from that. You're like, oh, that's not the kind of church that I want, want to be at. It's not the kind of people I want my kids around. Then you haven't understood Jesus as deeply as you should. You haven't understood grace. May God help us to understand this evening and receive more of Jesus and the grace that he offers in the gospel. Let's pray.